it's uh, interesting how um, just the Lord works things out the way that things need to be worked out um, with what you all shared today. Um, last week in our passage in, in Thessalonians, the, the theme was uh, just that we need each other, right? Fellowship. Uh, today in our passage, uh, we're, we're going to see that, that Paul prays for the church at Thessalonica uh, that love would abound. And so just, just interesting how the Lord works these things out. I was thinking uh, while we were uh, just sharing this morning, and, and this isn't in my notes, but just something that kind of stood out to me. Probably 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than I can't remember, we, uh, so there was a period where, uh, where I was a mortgage broker and my wife was a real estate broker, and that worked out really well for us until just kind of one day in about 2008, the rug got jerked out from under us, and it stopped working altogether. We had a few years where just things were tight and, um, you know, with work and money and those kinds of things, and there was this one day where I was reading in the scripture um, Matthew chapter six, uh, where, where Jesus talks about, um, you know, look at the birds of the air. They, they don't work or do anything and, and they're, you know, God takes care of them and look at the flowers of the field. They don't do anything and God clothes them in beauty. Uh, and, and he just talks about that, um, you know, trust in him, you know, tr- trust us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he'll, he'll take care of the things that, that you need in your life because he's aware of those things. And, Shortly after that, we uh, we went up to Portland one time for a weekend uh, getaway. Actually, I think it was the middle of the week, and I had a pastor friend who had just started a church, and we wanted wanted to go check out his his church midweek service. And I just heard the most incredible message I've ever heard from First Corinthians thirteen on what love is and what it means to love. And church got over, and uh, my wife and my daughters wanted to go downtown Portland to go to the uh, the, the latest donut shop that was the craze in Portland, and. I really didn't think about it, thinking, okay, going downtown Portland at night, probably not the great, I just wasn't thinking that, and we found ourselves in downtown Portland uh, after dark, and I don't know if you've been to downtown Portland after dark, but it, it gets kind of sketchy uh, as the sun goes down, and uh, we're down there, and just, you know, homeless people everywhere, and sidewalks, and tents, and, and just, you know, for, for us people from, you know, out here on this side of the mountain, we just don't see those things a lot, and it was a bit of a culture shock, and so I thought, well, we're down here, Let, let's grab our donuts and go to the hotel and have our donuts there. And so we pull into this parking lot and we, we get out of the car and, and immediately a homeless man comes up to like, I just had one foot out the car and this homeless man comes up. And my first thought was like, I got to get rid of this guy. <laughs> and, and then my second thought was like, well, we just came from church where we heard about love. Maybe I don't need to get rid of this guy. Right. I just kind of had this internal struggle of like what to do uh, in that moment. And uh, his name was Andrew. I remember his name. His name was Andrew. And I just asked if we had any food or any way to help him out. And I began to just ask him questions. Well, you know, like, what do you normally do for food? How do you normally, um, you know, get an income? And he just starts talking about his life and, you know, day labor and, you know, builds up enough money to to get a hotel every couple of weeks so he can take a shower and get cleaned up. And just as he's telling me his story, just like kind of my heart is melting a little bit, like having some compassion uh, for this guy just a few moments ago that I just wanted to get rid of. And... He opens up his backpack and he, and he pulls out a Bible and he's like, somebody gave me this. He's like, do you know anything about this book? And I just said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> I said, can, can I read something to you? I took his Bible and I opened to Matthew chapter 6. And I read in Matthew chapter 6 and just encouraged him to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God knows your needs and he's going to take care of you. And we invited him to come 
to the donut shop with us, and we sat down and had donuts with Andrew. Uh, with our kids were little at that time, and you know, here we are, downtown Portland after dark, having donuts with this guy who uh, said that he had done some time for murder. <laughs> we were sitting with a murderer, having having donuts, and and again, just this internal struggle in my mind, just like, when my parents hear about this, they're just, they're not going to be happy that you know what we did with with our kids, you know, and but it was a it was a special experience, um, you know, for our family, and, and God taught us something that day uh, about what it is to love people. Uh, as hard, hard as it may be. What we're going to see today, I think, that, that, that love is a defining mark of the Christian and it's a defining mark of the church. Like I said in the previous passage, Paul reminded us, and Pastor Brent did a good job last week of reminding us of just our, our need for one another. And God's design is that we would need one another, that we would be in fellowship Together, the idea of, of somebody doing Christianity apart from uh, the church, apart from fellowship, apart from sharing life with one another, it's, it's a foreign concept. You won't find that in the Bible. It's a foreign concept. In our passage today, we're going to be in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, and we'll finish out the chapter. Verses 6 to 8, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so in the previous passage, you might remember that Paul was worried about the church. Remember the context of, of 1 Thessalonians. This is a, a fairly new church plant. Hasn't been in existence for all that long. And immediately they suffer persecution. Right? They, they stir the pot just by their presence in Thessalonica. This is a cultural city. People from all over the world were there. Lots of cultures, lots of worldviews. And this church, Paul starts it. And immediately, just people are not happy that this church is there. And so Paul ends up having to, to run for fear of his life in the middle of the night. You remember that? And he goes to the next town, and the people that were mad that he started a church in Thess Thessalonica followed him to the next town. And they were trying to get him there too, and so he had to continue to flee. And so Paul has had to leave this, this brand new church plant that barely has their feet under them. And in last week's passage, we, we learned that Paul was fearful of the church, that, that what, what has happened to them uh, in the midst of this persecution. He's like, I, I got to send Timothy back to see what's going on for fear that maybe they've been tempted, for fear that maybe their faith has faltered. And you can understand as, as a group of new Christians, who, who they, their church probably doesn't have a doctrinal statement yet. Right? Their church probably doesn't have a mission statement yet. Maybe their gatherings are not all, maybe they're still trying to figure out what their gatherings look like. And they're facing persecution. So Paul sends Timothy back to, to find out what's going on with the churches at Thessalonica. Now remember, Paul is on the run for his life. But he's still worried about what is happening at the church at Thessalonica. And we find out in our passage today that, that Timothy has brought a good report. He's brought a report of the good news of their faith and of their love. Paul's fear was that their faith might be struggling and Timothy comes back and tells him this report. They're not struggling at all. They've maintained the faith in the midst of persecution and you know what? They actually love one another. <laughs> the, the church is still standing, Paul. 
This is the message that he gets from Timothy, brought back this positive report. And only did he bring back a positive report that their faith was intact, the church was still standing, that they love one another. But he also reported that they remember Paul and Timothy and Silas, who started the church, that they remember them kindly and that they long to see them. You might imagine a scenario where Paul comes into town, he starts this church, the persecution comes, Paul flees for his life. Maybe somebody would be mad at Paul for, for coming so quickly and just leaving when it got tough. Somebody might be offended by that. No, they, they remember them kindly and, that, and they long to see them. And so, so Paul is over here running for his life, thinking of the church. The church is over here facing persecution, thinking kindly of Paul and longing to see Paul. And so you see this love abounding in the church for one another. Matter of fact, Paul takes some encouragement. He says, for this reason, brothers, because of this positive report, because we heard that the church is still standing, their faith is intact, that they remember us kindly and they, they long to see us, Paul says, in all of our distress and affliction, that these things overshadow the distress and the affliction. And we know about Paul that he had a lot of distress and affliction in his life. Paul was somebody in the world before he became a Christian. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Educated, respected, had a good standing. He came to faith in Christ and his life from that point forward was full of distress and affliction. The man who persecuted the church became persecuted on behalf of the church, and that's how he finished out his life. Because of his love for God and his love for the church. He says, we've been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Think about this statement that he makes. We're comforted through your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In other words... Paul might be saying, I'm not sure we could go on if we heard that your faith faltered. If Timothy came back and gave us a negative report, that, that might be caused to just throw in the towel and say, this isn't worth it. That, that's how I read that statement. But because we hear this positive report that you're holding up under persecution and your faith is growing and your love is growing, Paul says, now, now we live. We can go on. I can continue in my distress and my affliction because it's worth it to hear this report. I was on Facebook this week and I saw a post uh, from somebody I'm connected with. And the post said this. It says that, I understand the sentiment behind calling your church a family, in quotes, or some iteration of the idea in a church name or a mission statement. In fact, it probably has some biblical merit. However, it seems that its practical outworking is at best a bit creepy and at worst abusive and cultish. And I saw that and I just, like my heart just kind of sunk. You know, the person that wrote this has had a, a difficult time with the church over a period of time and has, has been burnt by the church and, and now is putting things like this on Facebook that the best thing that you can expect from your church is that it might be a little creepy. That's the best thing that you can expect. The worst thing that you could expect is that you might be part of a cult. That, that post, it's an, it's an indictment on Christian community. It's, it's an indictment on the community that Pastor Brent talked about last week. It's an indictment on God's design for, for what he's placed us in, how he's placed us to live. And I understand that, that 
a lot of us have been hurt in our church experience. Churches are full of broken and flawed sinners. And we're bound to hurt one another. It just kind of comes with the territory. I'm guessing that your actual blood family might not be a whole lot different. Right? Families are full of broken and flawed people, and we've all been hurt by family members. Right? Our, our church is not a lot different because it's, just, it's full of sinners. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes, sometimes church can be weird. So sometimes it can be hurtful. Sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes it might feel like it's distress and affliction. But even if that's the case, God's design is that we would share life together, that we would fellowship together. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses terms for people within the church, uses terms like brothers and sisters. Paul, often in his letters, writes to the brothers and the sisters. I've known people in my life that I have one friend in particular who throws out, he uses the word brother a lot, like everybody's a brother. And honestly, it just, it's a little bit annoying sometimes. But the thing I appreciate about this particular friend is like he's sincere when he calls you brother. It's not just something that he throws out there. When he says, I miss you, brother, it's good to hear your voice, brother, he's sincere and he means it because I think he understands, understands what the Bible shows us for our design for living. How would Paul view Christian community? 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 22. Paul is talking about, matter of fact, his whole letter to the, to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, he talks a lot about his suffering and kind of defends his right as an apostle, defends his office as an apostle. And there comes this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he talks about how, uh, he talks about his pedigree, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then he goes on to say that he has far greater labors than these people who are trying to tear him down. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times, Paul says, that he received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. It was thought that 40 lashes would kill a man. And so they would give you 39 lashes, and the idea is like beating you with an inch of your life. That happened to Paul five times. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that means that they throw rocks at you in an attempt to kill you. Not what stoned means today. It says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. We could say Paul was, was a homeless dude. And he had it rough. When he talks about afflictions and distress, like he's got afflictions and distress like none of us probably have ever had. But then he finishes out this kind of rant, if you will, and he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul had it rough. Paul had a lot of problems in his life. He had a lot of difficulty in his life. 
And what he's saying here is like, and the worst thing of it all is that I have to worry about the churches. I love the church, Paul would say. And what's worse than being beaten within an inch of my life, as many times as that's happened, what's worse than being adrift at sea, what's worse than being hungry, what's worse than being in danger anywhere and everywhere I go, is that I love the church and I can't stop thinking about the church. So much so that it causes him anxiety. Have, have any of us ever had anxiety over the church, like in a good way? Probably not. What, what would Paul say to that statement that your church is at best a little bit creepy, at worst it's a cult? I don't think Paul would have kind words to say to that sentiment. I think Paul would say to that person, like, you don't get it. You don't get it and you're missing out on, on the thing that God loves the most, the church. Right? Ephesians 5 tells us that he, he gave his life for the church. And to be indifferent, one pastor says, to, towards the thing that God loves the most is not a good thing. Even though Paul has plenty of difficulties to face, he can't stop thinking about the church because for Paul, the church is his family. For Paul, the church is not creepy. For Paul, the church is not a cult. Author and pastor Tim Keller has a book entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And the idea behind this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, is that as Christians who follow Christ and who submit to Christ's rule and Christ's authority in their life, that, that we have this freedom that allows us to not have to be self-centered. Right? When I'm the center of my own universe, I have anxiety because i got to control my universe. Right? When I'm the center of my universe, I have to worry about a whole lot of things in order for my universe to maintain and not crumble. Right? Paul is living in this passage that we read with the freedom of self-forgetfulness got a lot of hard things going on in my life that, that none of you will ever know, but I'm not worried about those hard things. Like Paul would just say, that just comes with the territory of following Christ. What I'm worried about is not me, but what I'm worried about is the church, is what Paul would say. And this is the kind of thing that we see on display at Thessalonica. We see Paul dealing with all of these difficulties, worried about the church. We see the church dealing with their own difficulties and they long to see Paul and they're worried about him. We, we see kind of on all sides of this scenario, people having the freedom to forget about themselves. Pretty remarkable, isn't it, when we think about it that way? And this is, this is God's work. Like we can't get here apart from God working in us. Verses 9 to 10, Paul goes on to say, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So again, Paul, dealing with his own difficulty, saying, we can't even begin to thank God for you. That This might be the opportunity, if I'm Paul, to say, hey, remember these hard things that I'm going through. If you could think about me, that would be great. 
If you could pray for me, that would be even better. But no. Paul says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? In other words, like there is no amount of thankfulness that we can give to God that would adequately cover the thankfulness required for you. We just can't, we can't thank God enough for you. And then Paul says, as we pray most earnestly night and day. And, and what is it that Paul is praying? From what we read, he's not, not praying for his own circumstances. You might think Paul would say, could you pray for my circumstances to be better? We might even think Paul would say, I'll pray for you that your circumstances will be better. And we'll see here in a minute what they actually are praying for. Paul prays most earnestly night and day. And what he prays for is that we may see you, that he may see the Thessalonians face to face and supply what is lacking in their faith. Again, the freedom here of self-forgetfulness. Paul in his own difficulty is saying, we pray for you constantly. And the thing that we pray for you is that we would get to see you, that we would get to see you face to face and that we can help that we can help make up for what might be lacking in your faith. And I don't think this is an indictment saying that they have poor faith. I don't think it's that at all. I think Paul knows what they're going through. And he's like, I just so much want to be there to help and be a part of it. Yeah, I got my own hard things going on over here. But I would far rather be with you so that we could help you and that we could support you and that we could encourage you. We could show you love and that we could show you care. Paul considered it a privilege to pray for the church, and he considered it a privilege to serve others. There may have been times in Paul's life that he asked other people to pray for him, but we don't have a whole lot of written evidence of that. The written evidence that we have is Paul constantly praying for them. So he's greatly encouraged by the faith of the Thessalonians. And in verses 11 to 13, we'll see what he, exactly he prays. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Now, in other words, in light of what we just said, in light of the fact that we constantly pray for you, in light of the fact that we get this positive report, now, he says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul's prayer is not that his own difficulty would necessarily stop, but that God would direct his way back to Thessalonica. More than anything, Paul wants to see them. And... May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Again, this would be the opportunity for Paul to pray and say, man, man I'm really praying that the persecution would slow down. I'm really praying that, that the church would not falter in the midst of this difficulty. I'm, I'm praying for easier circumstances or better circumstances. That's what I would pray. Probably what you would pray given the opportunity. Paul could pray for their perseverance, for their strength. The list could go on, but he prays that their love would abound for one another and for all. 
of all the things that he could pray in his own difficulty and their difficulty, he doesn't pray that things would be easier or better. He prays that their love would abound first and foremost for one another and then for everyone. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, if I martyr myself for the cause of Christ but have not love, I gain nothing. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We love God, the Bible tells us, for one reason and one reason only. And it's because he first loved us. He initiated. His initiatory love causes us who come to him in belief and faith and repentance, causes us to love him. Not because we were smart enough to figure it out, but because he first loved us. And so we would say that love is the defining characteristic of God. Right? The Bible doesn't say that God is loving. The Bible says that God is love. There's a difference there. Yes, God is loving, but the Bible says that he is love, like God is the totality of love. And so if God is love, it would make sense that those who follow him would be loving, right? Because he's love. And it would make sense when a group of them get together in fellowship with one another, that the defining characteristic of that fellowship would also be love, right? It makes sense. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus doesn't say that the world will know who the disciples of Christ are because of their, their big buildings. He doesn't say that they'll know who the followers of Christ are because of how much scripture they memorize and can quote. He says that the world will know who the followers of Christ are by their love for one another. So this idea that, that the church is at best a bit creepy, that doesn't fit that description, does it? And at worst, cultish. That, like, that just doesn't work, does it? And, and like, certainly there, there are creepy and cultish churches out there. Like, I'm, right, I know that. But it's not God's design for the church. And the best thing that we can hope for is not that our church is a little bit creepy. The best thing that we can hope for is that we would have such a love for one another that it just spills out into love for everybody else. That's the best thing that we can hope for. And that's the best thing that we ought to strive for as a church, that we would abound in love. Again, Paul, praying of all the things that he could pray for, he prays that their love would abound for one another and for all, right? That their love would abound first and foremost inside the fellowship. It's got to work here. And that it would abound so much that it just spills out into love for all, love for our community. 
love for our family, love for our coworkers. So that's his prayer. In light of the positive report, in light of their faith intact, his prayer is that their love would increase, that it would abound for one another and for all. So that, he goes on to say, that he, that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. When our goal is love, right, we can have lots of goals as a church. Right? We can have a goal to grow the church. Not a bad goal to have. Right? We've got empty chairs in here. We would love to see more people come in. If we ran out of chairs, that would be a, a cool problem to have. Right? If we had so many people, we just couldn't fit them all. A cool problem to have. We, we can have a goal as a church to, to be a benefit to our community. Right? With our warming center, we're a benefit to the community. Good, good goal to have. We do monthly food distributions. I think you all may be aware of that. You know, we benefit our community that way. We, we have a positive reputation in our community. No, nobody's upset that we're here that, that we know of. Right? Those are good goals to have, but, but are those things the ultimate goals of the church? They're not ultimate. Not ultimate. The ultimate goal that we see here is that, that we would love one another, and through loving one another and loving everyone else, that God establishes our hearts blameless in holiness before him. And again, it just makes sense that the God whose defining characteristic is love, that, that the people that follow that God ought to look at least a little bit like him, right? That we love because he loves. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So you could take, you know, the first two-thirds of your Bible and say all of it hinges on loving God and loving each other, right? Loving vertically, loving horizontally. All of those weird parts of the Old Testament that we don't want to read, like all of that hinges on loving God and loving your neighbor. Like the Bible tells us that our, like our neighbor, like everybody's our neighbor, not talking about you know, the people next door to you. Everybody's our neighbor. Right? We love God and we love our neighbor. This is God establishing our hearts blameless and holiness before him. And then Paul closes out this chapter saying at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Think about this. The Christian faith tells us that, that Christ is going to return. Right? The Christian faith tells us that, that Christ came, and we, we celebrate that this time of year especially. God became flesh. He dwelt among us. But the Bible also tells us that there's going to be a day that, that he returns. Right? The, the first coming of Christ was as a baby, very humble and feeble and weak. And Jesus, outside of you know, those that follow him that want to learn about Christianity, like his life wasn't all that impressive. Like Paul, you know, people, people got mad at Jesus wherever he went. Right? They didn't, didn't like him. He upset the status quo. That, that's what I mean by that. 
But his second coming, well, the second coming is going to be a lot different than the first coming. Christ's second coming, every, everybody's going to know. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we believe that to be true, if not, not questioning it, but in the logical sense, if we believe that to be true, then what? If we don't believe that Christ is going to come back, a lot of this that, that we're talking about may not make a whole lot of sense and it may just seem like a, a tall order. But what if, what if Christ actually is going to return? What if what we read in the Bible about his second coming is true? What if there's going to be a day that comes that everyone will bow the knee before Christ and acknowledge him as Lord whether they want to or not? What if heaven is real? What if hell is real? What if people are going to go to one place or the other? What if it's real? What if, what if God really is the totality of love? And what if we as followers of Christ are called to live a life that's marked by the characteristic of love? What if? Then, then what we're reading here with Paul, it, it makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot more sense if, if these things, if we can take them to the bank as if they are true, and we can take them to the bank because they are true, then it makes sense that the Christian would live a life of love. I'm not standing up here like telling you to do this hard thing because it is a hard thing to do. Right? Just like in our, our blood families, our church families, like we're hard, it's hard to love everybody sometimes, isn't it? Right? We rub each other the wrong way. We frustrate each other. We, we know the buttons to push. Like It's hard. And, and I don't want to stand up here and say, like, yeah, just go love everybody. It's hard, to lo it's hard to love people that aren't like us, isn't it? We, we tend to get offended at, at people who are not like us. I can understand people that are like me, and I can be patient with people that are like me, but if you're not like me, then I'm probably going to get offended by something that you say or do. It's hard. And this is where we need Christ. This, this is part of Christ's redeeming work. If you look around at the church, there's pr probably some of you that might look across the room and say, I, I probably wouldn't hang out with that person just through the natural course of life. Wh whether it's personality rub or just, you know, life might not cross your paths outside of a context like this. But God has called us together as the church. And he's brought people together from different walks of life with different perspectives, with different experiences and has called that group of people to love one another as a representation of who he is. And for that love to abound so much that it, that it spills out outside of these four walls and into our community. Does that make sense? And so in line with Paul's prayer, my prayer for us today is that our love would abound for one another and for all. Father, we're thankful this morning, thankful that you... Um, that you are love, not just that you are loving, but that you are love. Thankful that you love the world so much that you sent your son to come and redeem us from the power of sin. Father, we're thankful that you are patient with us and that you contend with us and that you put up with us in all of our faults and all of our flaws, all of our brokenness and our unfaithfulness, in our wavering, God, thank you for um, mercy. Thank you for grace. 
pray for us this morning, God, that you would help us to be, um, as individuals, people that are characterized by love and as a fellowship collectively, that we would be characterized by love. That you would help us when it's hard to love, that you would help us uh, to love those that are not like us. That you would help us, first and foremost, to love you. And that as we love you, that we would begin to care for and love the things that you care for and love as a reflection of our faith. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.